0: Professor Hugo Spears is Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at UCL. He studies how we remember, navigate and imagine space. Some of his most interesting research has examined the brains of London cabbies who are required to learn the roads of London in painstaking detail. Now he leads the Sea Hero Quest project in which the team are studying dementia using a mobile game. We talk about his research, which in my opinion is fascinating, but I delve a bit deeper. Asking how ordinary people can themselves do fascinating research and not get stuck on mind-numbingly boring projects. We talk about how he manages his time, how he sees work, mentorship and how he communicates and publicises his research so effectively. I hope you enjoy. Could you tell me a little bit about your story? So perhaps fill me in on how you got to where you are today.
1: I left school to do a degree in neuroscience uh, at University College London back in Uh, gosh 1995 and uh, back in 1995 there were 11 students on our course it wasn't a big area neuroscience was really picking up in the early 90s there were uh, one book that led me into choosing neuroscience was the astonishing hypothesis by Francis Crick all about the idea that our conscious experience and everything we our whole of our mind is arising from neurons and how they interact Um, which doesn't seem that astonishing now, Um, but he framed it in this way of, it is astonishing if you look back historically at how people conceive things. Uh, But that was one of many books and things that were happening. I also went to various lectures organized by the British Neuroscience um, Association and, you know, the science festivals, I grew up in Edinburgh, and they, they had a big influence. And my parents are both had been academics and left academia for much more interesting things. Um, but um, so yeah, I, and neuroscience seemed like an exciting area to go into. Um, and then, you know, it's a, a process of doing a degree, a PhD, postdoctoral fellowships, and so on that leads you eventually to being a professor running a laboratory, um, running a, you know, and, and teaching in the university. Um, I think, and it's been—I've been very lucky. I, a lot of people will say, "Oh gosh, there've been all sorts of lucky things that have happened," and I certainly had lots of luck on my career. But it's—it's it's a lot about positioning yourself in the right place at the right time, uh, as well as that luck. And you have all sorts of unlucky things happen to you in your career as well. Um, but I think, in terms of reflecting over how I ended up arriving at where I am, is. Um, probably a lot of it's picking to work with the right people and asking other people about those people and reading about the work. And so when I'm advising people on, Oh, what, you know, what should I do next? Or how do I do this? It's, it's a lot of reading. <laughs> so you read people's work and you think, Oh, does that sound like the kind of thing I want to do? Would I be happy writing a, an article like that? Or, uh, and so I've just been very fortunate to um, work with a lot of uh, amazing people. So my PhD supervisor was Neil Burgess, who, um, it's just, been really inspirational to the field in terms of the diversity of what he's done the precision with which he's tackled problems uh, and so mean uh, I think that's been a real influence in the sense that um, in this interview we'll come across uh, I've really tried to combine lots of methods and the- and approaches to tackling problems I've really enjoyed not just being a neuroscientist that uses one method and one way of thinking about things um, that has real advantages from my perspective. Um, the main one for me is enjoyment. I enjoy life more because I do more things. I don't get stuck. Uh, that's just something I've wanted to, to do. Um, but there are other advantages, of course, in that I uh, can see problems very differently. I can spot commonalities. I can understand things that you come from only underst- having looked over lots of bits of literature. Um, so that that's one of the other motivations. Uh, but the downsides of just having to keep up with so much literature and trying to keep up with methods advances over multiple fields is a real challenge. And running, I think the thing I'd not appreciate earlier really is running a group that um, contains different perspectives in it. And at an early level, you really need to gain expertise. And if you're in a multidisciplinary group, that can be harder sometimes to gain that real precise knowledge that you want to gain. So I think that's been a, a an, something I'd not factored in earlier in my my approach. Uh, so yeah, now I'm very much very happy to be running a research group at University College London that tackles spatial cognition, how we navigate, how we remember the past, how we imagine the future using a whole range of methods that we'll discuss.
0: You've mentioned how important it was to surround yourself with good people. And I was wondering if you had any advice on finding good mentors.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, the key thing actually is uh, it's a good question. There are two things I would think that in terms of finding good mentors one of the most important things you want to do when you're finding who you're going to work with is to really understand what that what those people are doing and what their interests are and where they're going uh, with their research. They real confidence that when you read their papers, you get excited by it. Or when you speak to them or you look at the talks they've given that you think, this is really exciting. Because uh, if you're going to work with someone, you're going to invest a lot of your time and energy. If you're not quite bought into what they're doing, that's not going to work. You really need to have thought, this is great. That's the most important thing. The second most important thing, which is e- probably equally important, is actually getting hold of people they've worked with, who've worked with them, sorry, and asking them about that person. Uh I, I certainly asked about people in the past when I was an undergraduate, and people sort of like, no way, don't don't work with this person. They're a nightmare. And it might be that they are the only person in the world that does the thing you want to do. And in that context, maybe you do want to put up with all the problems people raise and think, I really want to do this. This person is difficult, but if I really excel in this, I will put up with that. Uh, but generally, you do want to find somebody who's supportive as a mentor. Um, and so it's just asking around, understanding what other people think. I think that's so important to, to get that, that perspective.
0: And I want to push on that a little bit, and maybe without getting too specific, because I don't want to get you in trouble. Um, but I, <laughs> I spoke to Pierce Keen in a previous interview, who's an academic at UCL, um, and he mentioned something similar to you, where he was like, when he's there's been there have been mentors and senior people in his field before who have a reputation for getting Nature papers or mm. very prestigious publications, and he said, don't work with them; it's never worth it. Um, I was curious about your stance on that because you mentioned that in your field sometimes it's a case that they they might be the only person in the world doing what you want to do. So, without again getting too specific, what's your opinion on that? Do you sometimes have to, butt, you know, take the bullet and work with them or do you recommend not doing it?
1: Yeah, I th- I think you have to take the bullet. You have to you have to I think you're the most important thing in term if you're going to go through to research so doing medical research is you've got to be utterly passionate about it because it is so demanding and so demoralizing in many ways there's so many Uh, negative aspects of it that I was when I under I remember when I interviewed for my undergraduate degree going right back to the story I was told by uh, Luca Turin was the tutor he was an amazing tutor he's he said he's you know left UCL many years ago he's you know in in Paris but he he said to me you're only going to really enjoy this 10 percent of your time (laughs) it's really tough don't come if you want to do anything else like that and I think that's kind of true so you really need to be utterly obsessed with the air i'd maybe obsessed this too much but you have to really and be really fascinated by what you're looking at um and so in that sense i would kick back against this sort of view that like well and you know, if someone's really really bad you just don't want to work with them often those people who are who've got that reputation for being really tough um you it's partly because they they're the kind of people that are just super demanding they expect so much out of people or um they just may not be very present you know, that's another classic problem in academia, that if you have a large group, uh, there will be a hierarchy structure to it. And I kind of think that y- y- it just depends on your personal traits as to whether you would benefit. Are you the kind of person that's going to do well um, in a group where uh, you, you can kind of just get on with things? Or do you need that kind of mentoring support? Because um, it, it's it's actually very, very individually based i certainly if i think about the people i've i've had work with me uh, in the last say five years um i think some of those people really enjoy like one-to-one dialogue and want to have discussions and really want to learn and develop and um they do need the kind of like interactive support and it's a pleasure they're really fantastic people to work with but there are other people who really just want to get on with things on their own and they need a bit more kind of bringing in and supporting but they don't need as much interaction and so based on that it really is it's not a one-size-fits-all so a long answer to that point but yeah i don't think you just utterly want to avoid the big shots of people who will uh but you you just got to be very eyes wide open when you go into a position and you may even find despite all the things you've gone through checking that actually yeah the supervisor turns out to be suddenly way more stressed in their life People change. It's not like we're all static. Um, you know, a big thing to be aware of people have children, you know, that might change how much time they have substantially to support others and yeah, you just got to do your research really about finding out who's a suitable person to work with, yeah.
0: Do you view what you do as work or do you view it as a passion or how do you, how do you see things?
1: Ah, uh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I do. It's, it's it is work. I don't think you should ever, I don't think anyone should lose that uh, view you are so. i guess the answer to that is a good question and i guess the bottom line is for work are you supplying a product to something where somebody's paying you if yes then you're doing work and, and that is what i'm doing through most of my time but of course like uh, you know i'm absolutely passionate i absolutely love doing the product that i'm doing um it's it's yeah i absolutely so feel so lucky every day that i get to do what i do I never sort of think, oh gosh, I wish I wasn't doing this. I've no no point in my career. Thought I've always thought about other options and been really broad thinking. I've tried to be, you know, thought what else can I do? But but uh, so so the, the answer is that it isn't either or. oh, you think about it is like I'm just getting, you know, this isn't really work. Uh It is work, and you do have to accept that, and you also have to accept. Oh, very early on i was sort of now even thinking oh do people get paid overtime at least back in the 90s was this kind of idea but yeah, it's never gonna happen you know you do have to work out where you want to put your time in and um you know i often think i probably do work probably around a nine to five maybe just a little bit more than nine to five something along those terms but for me that often ends up being very late at night uh putting in hours uh, because I've done other things that I've needed to do flexibly in my life and uh yeah it's been pretty good
0: from my perspective it looks like the more senior you get in academia maybe maybe the more time you're spending on things like reviewing things managing teams uh admin things that maybe don't actually align with your passion and what you originally went into it for how how accurate is that
1: yeah there is a degree of truth to that uh i think you yeah, you do spend, I guess, yeah, I had a discussion with a colleague of mine about this. And uh, yeah, it, that's true, unfortunately. There's a sort of point you reach where you are You are trying to cut these things out and and make sure you're streamlining to avoid too much of it. Um, so a lot of my time uh, will be spent on emailing people. And I had a discussion with another senior colleague the other day. He said, did you get work done today or did you just spend time emailing people about everything everyone else was supposed to do? So you... you at a more senior level you definitely spend more time coordinating people but it it doesn't feel negative i w- i think i would say certainly what position i'm in and and the duties i have and the team i have working with me uh it it it's very positive like i'm getting new results i'm seeing i'm talking to people about ideas we're developing things it it isn't negative it isn't like i'm overwhelmed by tedious boring admin a lot of those things are kind of connecting people together and saying right can you what's the follow-up to this? And, oh, right, let's talk about this, have another meeting to run over this. And trying to minimize too many meetings is important as well. You can get overwhelmed by meetings, lots of meetings. Um, so, yeah, it's been been an interesting
0: problem. So I think one of your most iconic bits of research is studying the brains of London taxi drivers. And maybe could you, could you give um, kind of an overview of what you've learned from studying the brains of cabbies? Yeah, let me
1: start with a memory I have, actually, which is uh, standing in the Institute Neurology stairwell. Um, I was just, as a, I was a PhD student, I'm pretty sure at the end of my PhD, and the person in front of me going up the stairwell, it's a pretty dank stairwell, you know, these are old buildings, uh, and the person in front of me up the stairwell was Eleanor McGuire, uh, who'd did this first work in London Taxi Drivers. And she turned to me and said, oh, you know, I've just discovered that um, London Taxi Drivers have a bigger hippocampus. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> and I, I really stu- stood and went, that's incredible. I I, I remember that in the event of her telling me, uh, you know, this original discovery before it was published. And so the, the story back then is that she had, uh, I'm not sure this is fully, you know, the whole history of this should be wrapped up in a paper at some point, but she had started, she'd scanned, I think, one taxi driver as part of a study and realized they were actually quite, or she was aware that if you catch a London cab around, this is an incredible thing they do. So the, the story with London taxi drivers, for people that don't know, is that they in London have to memorize the 58 or so, 60,000 streets in London by name and how they're all interconnected. Uh, to then sit an exam where any two random streets are given to them and they have to tell the exact optimal route between them um, and they have to do about 12 of these and if they get them right they get a license to to trade and be a taxi driver but given that information the complexity of that it takes a minimum two years of full-time study to four years to memorize the structure of that network of streets in london and Lots of people don't make it. It's quite a hard thing to do. Not everyone's brain can memorize. I don't think mine could. Actually, certainly if I started now, uh, I I wouldn't manage it. Um, So they are an absolutely fascinating group of individuals um, who who do that job. And they do deserve a lot of uh, of interest and praise in that they are doing something humans have done for millennia of memorizing stuff and using their brain. Uh, So much of our society is offloaded to technology now. But they're holding on to this real skill, um, which we could lose if they eva- evaporate as a trade. So I'm always trying to promote and talk about that. That really is amazing. So in terms of neuroscience, though, what Eleanor McGuire discovered was that if you measure the size of their hippocampus, this key bit of the brain for memory, uh, that's in particularly important for spatial memory, uh, their hippocampus bilaterally was, in fact, larger in the posterior part uh, and actually, in fact, smaller in the anterior part. Um, and a lot of past work has suggested that the posterior part of the hippocampus might be particularly important for spatial memory. But this discovery that she published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS, uh, as it's often referred to, um, uh, you know, was a foundational study in 2000. It was a big report because up to that point, there wasn't much evidence that neurons really, you know, there wasn't much evidence that human brains changed in terms of size or volume. It's still causing controversy today. That study actually, people. Uh, it was a recent review that came out tackling this and talking about it. But I have to say that so I joined Ellen Maguire's team uh, in 2003. So not long after she published that first paper, and I was delighted to be involved in then helping scan bus drivers with Katia Woollett. Well, I mean, and, and taxi drivers. So I scanned the taxi drivers, and she scanned the bus drivers, and we put a paper out that showed um, taxi driver. Uh, Taxi drivers have a larger hippocampus than bus drivers. And that's important because bus drivers capture loads of confounds you might think might drive changes in hippocampal size. They drive around London, they have to put up all the smog, they take customers to places. um, And most importantly, they drive all the time. So it might be something about driving that causes these changes. So seeing that was an important replication and extension. Um, And then Katia did a great job of actually taking drivers, this is Katia Willett, took drivers before they... Where they're beginning to train and after they trained and individually chasing and showing that their hippocampus would increase in size so we have these three studies that together suggest it's not a spurious finding that that um cropped up in the first study but the thing i was particularly a challenging thing i did with the taxi drivers to put them into a two million pound virtual reality simulation and scan them while they navigated around it uh, it was an absolutely crazy study that i I only did because I had Helen McGuire's backing. I was a postdoc, so I had a bit more time. I wasn't a PhD student; would have it would have been a nightmare. What we tried to do was something completely different. We had them drive for about thirty-five minutes through London, picking up customers and dropping them off. And uh, it, this was a, a, a game that Sony had built for the PlayStation called The Getaway. It's not wasn't a, it was I think it was a reasonably successful game. Um, but it, was, it wasn't a great game. But what was really impressive, they spent two million pounds on simulating London in, in utter, utter detail from ordnance survey data and th- thousands and thousands of photographs to rebuild London. So you could drive through it and there were other taxis moving around. There were people in the city. It really simulated a bustling city. Um, and, you know, what we're in 2020 and now there's another game out that's kind of a bit like that. Dogtown is a, an available game that's sort of you can run around London. Um, but it's not, it's not a match to London. That was literally a, a match to what was there. So the really challenging thing was then thinking, what do we do with this? And what we decided to do was to have them come out of the MRI scanner and then watch a video replay of the journey through London. And um, they had to describe what they were thinking when they were in the MRI scanner. So this their memory of what their thoughts were, which is a very unusual thing to look at. But the idea was that we might be able to find out what was cognitively happening for them at different points in a journey and dissect the process of navigation in a lot more detail. Uh, and that approach is sort of carried right through. I've just written a review for a journal that's still picking up on this idea that when you step out of your house and you go meeting a friend in a, in a coffee shop, it's not one task, it's composed of lots of things that are going on. And so when that goes wrong in medical conditions like Alzheimer's disease or amnesia or. Sort of traumatic brain injury, lots and lots of conditions will lead to being lost. It's it's actually could tap into lots of parts of that process. Uh, But back then, we found out that this key area, the hippocampus, that gets larger in London taxi drivers, is only engaged in one brief moment of the entire journey. And that's when they have to initially think about where they're going to go. For three seconds, they'll solve that entire 58,000 state space problem of how do I navigate through all this network three seconds and their hippocampus will be more active in that moment. And then many of them were described being an autopilot. Their brain just takes over and they're just coasting along to their targets. But we simulated a really bad day out. So they had to kind of buses getting in the way, people jumping out. There was, uh, you know, loads of streets blocked. So they had to replan their route. They had all sorts of annoying things happen to them. So, um, you know, we could look at their theory of mind. We could look at all sorts of things that happened in their journey um, I even looked at the swearing, but we didn't find anything consistent for that at all. It was a bit naive to think we might. But anyway, that's some of the study. There's been, and we are carrying on some more work with taxi drivers right now. There's lots of work in my lab. Uh, we're wrapping up now on, on London taxi drivers to understand how they do their job. But I, I look forward to submitting that, getting that pre-printed in the new year. Uh, but I, I, it probably goes beyond the discussion right now.
0: It's uh, fascinating. And I've seen you speak about this before. And I can't remember if this is work from your lab or your work, but there's also something about the hippocampuses of medical students compared to consultants, wasn't there?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, uh, Alan Maguire's lab also looked to see. So, if bus drivers don't show a change. So, you know, they don't really have to learn that much. What would happen for medical students if you go from your early training right up to consultant level? It's a huge amount of knowledge and experience. A very similar, if you think about it, to the amount of knowledge a London taxi driver, and, and indeed much more extensive, really, for medical training. Um, but indeed, they don't show any change in their hippocampus. They don't have an interesting hippocampus, unfortunately. So, people listening from medicine, it's not, it's not the, it's certainly not a, an exciting avenue for for thinking. Wow, it'll boost your hippocampus. Um, but I'm sure other bits of your don't underestimate a huge amount of change going on in lots of parts of your brain and the bits of brain that that store your knowledge, your temporal lobes will have been very affected by
0: medical training, no doubt. So most research projects, and I'm talking about just any research project ever, most projects aren't very interesting, um, but your projects are very interesting. So there's the uh, London cabbie stuff. And there's also, maybe we will talk about it later, the sea hero quest stuff. Um, And all of these projects are just, straight away, you just think, wow, that's so fascinating. So the question is, is this something you've been very intentional about that you've only ever kind of followed your passion and picked projects that, you know, really, really excite you? And secondly, how, I mean, how have you made projects like this happen? Because from my end, you know, a research project might look like doing kind of an audit on a hospital ward or something like that, which is 10 times or 100 times less interesting than this. So maybe you could talk a bit about that.
1: Uh, yeah that is an interesting point uh i i don't know i mean i i've obviously been am biased by the things i've done other things i've chosen i've really been passionate excited by the research we've done and um possibly one way of looking at if you looked into the research you looked through the things we published in my group um you might at least spot two t- two aspects of that i would say are kind of um may be unusual in that i have actually managed to try and combine single unit in a recording in rodents so a, a tetrode recording work um in a lab with fmri and other methods other people doing this are uh, neil Burgess. So i mentioned earlier my, my phd supervisor is someone that's combined a, a broader range of methods and approaches than i have um but he is very unusual in doing that and i i'd say i i there aren't many other people doing it, so I've been very fortunate. The only way I can really manage that is by fantastic collaborators and colleagues who help support things. I just could not run effectively what I've been doing. So, how have I managed to do? Do I pick uh, things that seem particularly interesting? And yeah, I think I, I think most scientists try and do that. It's just maybe um, uh, you know, just I've tried to pick things that would advance our understanding uh, more. A lot of it's, uh, you know, opportunities arise and you think, oh, we could, we can try and do this. I was actually, so I, that's one I it's combining different methods. It's one of the reasons some of the work from my lab might look different or, as you said, more exciting to you is that we have combined. So we've looked at rats dreaming about the future and seeing if we can decode what's happening in a rat's brain before that's happened as it's simulating the future. Um, you know, we scanned London taxi drivers, you know, we're in the process of doing some more work with them now. Um, and they're just inherently a fascinating topic to look into. Um, and the Sea the Hero Quest project I'll, I'll talk about in a moment uh, has been uh, an absolute gift the where that, that is something I couldn't write a grant to say, I'd like to do this crazy big project. Somebody had to kind of emerge. But the reason I, you know, that this big scale project we ran where we collected data from uh, over 4 million people partly arose because I'd spent 20 years doing other projects that were a bit similar. And so when people got in touch it was i was well positioned to run that um so uh i so actually that's a just to add one more bit to the answer to that um i i do think it's one of the challenges we have as scientists is thinking what's going to be the right experiment that's going to be uh you know you, you're happy to run because you're going to invest so much time in doing that and you it's quite easy to fall into a slightly incremental trap where you think oh we did this Logically, we should just do this again with something slightly different to, to change that. And I wouldn't say that's bad science. We do need a lot of incremental science done to really establish and replicate things. And I, I am always thinking, well, what can we do in here that's going to replicate something so that we have some grounding to know this is a sensible extension? Um, but I think maybe we don't spend, and I keep thinking I need to spend more time really sitting and thinking, What would break dogma? Like, What is the current dogma we have that maybe I don't believe? And that is challenging to think, okay, what are the, the hidden assumptions we might make about how the brain operates? And what can we do to try and change those? Because that inherently is more exciting for me. I mean, I said you need to replicate things and extend them, but you do need to have a good variety of projects that would change the way you might think those are more likely to fail those projects. So you need to kind of combine them. So if I think about somebody starting their PhD, I think, right, have a really big shot, crazy project, but then some sensible, safe ones. And uh, I think that is that is something we all, we all need to think about doing. But sometimes those big shot ones cost a lot more money <laughs> or require some incredible collaborations. Um, so yeah, as long answer as ever, sorry to you get long answers from me to these great
0: questions. Are people always, and by people, I mean collaborators, uh, people funding you, do they tend to be supportive of these big shot projects and these crazy ideas? Or is it a skill that you've picked up in trying to communicate why they should collaborate or fund you?
1: I, I mean, I, my main experience of, of academia, I, actually, this this is probably a response to that, uh, is when I started out, when I was a postdoc, so doing my PhD, being a postdoc, I thought, OK, this is I'm uh, enjoying science. This is good, but it looks quite tough at the higher end when you're, like you said, there's a lot of administration and, you know, are you really getting to do the work? One of the nicest things you get at the senior level is this capacity to have an idea, write an email to someone on the other side of the world and say, hey, (laughs) I've had an idea. Would you like to just invest loads of your time that's not funded to just do this crazy project with me? And they write an email back saying, sure, yeah, we'll divert a whole lot of time and effort and energy into working with you on this. Let's do it. Uh, and that happens way, way more than you might think. Very, very rarely do you email someone and say, hey, do you want to do this? And they go, no way, or I'm not doing that. Um, but a lot of that comes out of meeting people and getting to know people. And uh, I think Twitter, we may comment on social media is also changing that, that. People are much more connected now than they were. But I would say that thats is a—that experience is something I think maybe it would have been nice for me to know when I was earlier in my career, that one of the things you get when you go further up is this wonderful freedom to say, hey, <laughs> I'm going I'm, I'm to like, contact the world's expert on this and do something crazy and see if they will. And normally people really respond well to that request. To And I think finally on this point, it's something that I've come to really value in academia over industry. If you just contacted someone and say, a, take a huge comp- company like Google and said, right, crazy idea, can you just now drop a whole lot of resources, take an entire team and just do this with us? There's no money in it, but we'll get a publication out of it. We'll change the world. But there's, you know, they can't. They literally can't do that. No company, even these huge ones, or it's extremely rare to have a company do that. And they'd be kind of mad to because of the intellectual property right problems that would arise by just doing that. So we really need to value. I don't think people talk about that enough. The massive value in academia of just, crazy things happening and discoveries made
0: by just people talking to each other. Another thing about your research, along along with it being really interesting, is that it also gets a lot of press. Um, and I think, so say your um, research into London cabbies, if I was presenting it, it might be, you know, hippocampal changes seen in professional drivers in London. And I think there's a way in which you speak about it and present it that makes it Really interesting to anyone who 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 sees it is. I mean, do you have any advice on that and how you make your research seem interesting to everyone?
1: I think I got. I I I think I have changed how I present research, and uh, that actually has a big thanks to uh, media training I received earlier in my career. Uh, Quite early on, I was connected to various people who provided guidance on that. So, for example, when I was on a Welcome Trust fellowship, I went to a whole day's training, or maybe it was two days, provided by the Welcome Trust for understanding narratives and how you communicate. And that really blew my mind. I mean, I'd done various bits before, but that training workshop was delivered by an absolute expert in media who really cut to the chase and was just like, this just does not work if you do, it just, it was incredible. Um, So I think some of that has changed the way I would approach that. And the key thing is kind of connecting people immediately into the big idea. Um, So certainly in that, if you think in advertising, the key word is hook, you've got to hook people in and think what's the first few words that are going to make them think, well, I've got to pay attention now. And there are all sorts of tricks and things of making them more engaging um so yeah you're right i, d- I do think about what is going to make people interested when they when they read this or what are the angles and I, I look at some of the research we do and sometimes i think no we we definitely don't need to press release this or worry about creating a story in the press about this it really isn't it isn't doesn't need it it's not going to be worth doing but there are other discoveries i think oh i think re- people will really love hearing about this we should really make an effort to you know, tell the story and and get out there. Um, so it is case by case, and uh, yeah. I thanks again to the Welcome Trust; they've been incredibly helpful in in training.
0: So, so the key there was the the training you received, and it told you something about was it narratives? You said,
1: yeah, I think so. Uh, it was a specific workshop on narratives. I wouldn't say all of the reason I've I've engaged with the press and and done more work with trying to. Publicly communicate science has come purely from one uh, short workshop, but it, it sprang to my mind as something where I've been fortunate um, to receive some extra training. That is one, you know, and I had other bits. So I was very fortunate that the Wellcome Trust nominated me for a, a British the British Association Science Festival, the main UK Science Festival. I, I um, provided one of the key talks, a Charles Darwin lecture. Uh, and they really trained me. They didn't want me just going up on stage and embarrassing the Wellcome Trust as their nominee. So they they really grilled me, made me run over, change the talk, cut things out that would be insensitive, or you know, so so all those little experiences I've had along the way, I've really valued. It have, have changed the way I would look at uh, communicating. I do have a kind of sense that there's been a little bit of a reduction in the drive to public communication of science in the last five years that I feel like there was a big boom in the kind of 2000s, um, the change of the millennia. There was a lot more drive to arts science funding for projects to get people talking. Science festivals were really big um, and it's diminished. And partly I suspect due to the rise of social media, like people are disseminating very effectively now. We don't need so many projects where people stand on a street corner (laughs) providing a science comedy act or whatever it was that, that would have been done
0: what's your advice to a junior researcher who doesn't have access to formal media training, uh, but wants to get better at communicating their research? What would be the kind of, you know, the, the 80, 20, what would be the really take home points?
1: Yeah. These days I would definitely get onto um, uh, Twitter if as a science to get in a sense of how to do that. And I would, um, yeah, I would start trying to follow people you're interested in. What and uh, my advice for doing that, so in terms of communicating your science, Twitter will allow you to get feedback as to who likes what you said and you can look at the people who are successful on there to see how are they communicating. We have to be very be very aware Twitter is not like some wonderful thing. it has loads of negatives to it, but from my experience, it has been the main social media platform for science dialogue, and it has increasingly become more and more important in my view. It's not a it's not a, it's a, not a baby thing anymore. Um, but it is a mob rule system. So it does have the effect that if somebody powerful comments on something, they have more and it ripples and there are dynamics. But the one thing currently I'm really impressed by is a new researcher can arrive on the scene on Twitter, provide the right kind of information and people start to pick up on them, retweet them, and they get a lot of dialogue and you can see people who are just very junior jumping up and getting, uh, interactions and a while back, somebody wrote a paper about the K-index. So we might be aware of the H-index. So the H-index in science and, and publishing is, the, is a number which is the number of, cita- number of articles you have that have been recited. i get this right. So if someone has an H-index of, say, 15, they have 15 articles that have been cited 15 times. So if you have an H index of 120, you have 120 articles all cited over 120 times. That's a very high number of citations. The K index was the number of citations you had, the number of Twitter followers you have divided by the number of citations you have. So there are people that with huge followers and very few citations. And this academic got very frustrated and angry about this. But they have way too much voice um uh, people just aren't bothered by this anymore and i think for me it's uh my advice to to people getting into science communication and promoting their work is get in there have a look at what other people are doing uh, but and don't be afraid to just start commenting and making points what i would really advise doing is find links every tweet you've put out ideally in my mind should always have some link to something else so you don't want to put a tweet out it's like hey i had a great breakfast this morning nobody's going to want to tweet that or somebody would go yeah, <laughs> you know, it's not an interesting thing to say, right? Um, or even just, oh, you know, something more bland as well about science. But if you put in and say, I've just found this really interesting paper on, say, schizophrenia. It, 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 I hadn't seen this new perspective on this. Here's the link. Very likely someone's going, and also you can tag people, right? So you could tag in 20 other people who might work on schizophrenia. It's quite likely one of them will go, oh, yeah, I'll retweet that. And then that goes out to a whole bunch of other people. So there are kind of approaches you can take to disseminating through Twitter, if you look at it. But the key advice would be with that, imagine you're standing in a very large square, and you're going to shout something out to everyone in the square. A lot of people are shouting, would you shout this out? Because if you want to shout out, I had a great breakfast, and people look at like, you don't want to say that. But if you are saying, look, here's a really interesting piece of research, you should all look at it, I think is interesting. And people look, that's good. That's a good thing to be doing. People will find that interesting. So get on there and get commenting and comment on other people's work and be positive. Provide positivity. We need more of this, you know. People, people that's uh, been a great feature of Twitter is people being positive about science on there as well as negative.
0: So speaking about positivity and negativity in Twitter, um, someone I read a lot of is Nassim Taleb. Um, and I think you you might have come across him, and he's very critical of psychology as a field. And I wanted this is why I wanted to take this criticism to you. Um, he often quotes a large study uh, that was published in science in which researchers tried to replicate hundred uh, prominent psychology studies, and I think only thirty nine percent of them replicated the original results. And then I guess his conclusion from that is that the field of psychology um, is well is a poor field, I guess. Um, and I've only ever seen that side of things. So I wanted to kind of ask you basically what what your take on that was. Yeah, I mean, I think
1: that has been It's been described as the replication crisis um, is, is the term used for psychology. And it's not the only field to undergo this crisis of we can't actually replicate a lot of these things. Um, what I think is probably most concerning is that you would expect. So it maybe should be so shocking that so many studies actually don't replicate because Uh, you're looking at a complicated biological system and you're tapping into it by asking about behavior and seeing if you can get behavior. It's a very difficult thing to study. So psychology inherently is more challenging than, say, the physics of hard materials or something where you can really, you don't need to use statistics. You just measure these things very precisely. Um, so, So it is inherently harder. You're going to get more noise from studying human behavior than a lot of other things. But the bit that concerns me probably in, in that is often where there's not enough theoretical background or triangulation across different approaches and methods. That's why I've driven a lab that's tried to use different approaches, different ways of looking at the same problem. So, so a lot of the studies that have been difficult to replicate, say, might come from social psychology, where it's just difficult to actually study that phenomenon in animals or other methods and so it's just very hard to to replicate some of these studies. and the key is what's the underlying neurobiology of that's much less clear. And so I think that having really deeper theories is quite helpful. But it shouldn't stop us studying these things, and it shouldn't stop us doing better research. And we all I think the whole fields acknowledged we need to really study much larger samples, use better statistics, and avoid all sorts of pit tra- pitfalls. Um, so I think things have got a lot tighter and better. Um, uh, but yeah, he's right to be critical. I think the field definitely is uh, a challenging field. It does require more work. I, 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 think it's pretty positive though, the impact and the drive for open science is just like a no brainer. Like I always assume people did provide material, but in many cases it turns out people don't provide, uh, material to look at, um, it's hard to provide all the data and there are ethical issues around it. If you want to provide MRI scans, you can reconstruct somebody's face in some cases from their MRI scan. And you want that, that their brain and their face re handed You don't want to do that. So it, it, there are problems in that world, but um, yeah, it, it's getting better. Definitely.
0: So can we talk a little bit about sea hero quest? Um, so from what I understand, you've taken over 4 million players uh, playing a mobile game. And from that, You've made some insights into dementia. Can you f- fill me in on the gaps? Sure.
1: That that was a, a really crazy project where uh, my colleague, Michael Hornberger, who was at the University of Cambridge at that point, but he's now running the Dementia Center at the University of East Anglia. So Michael Hornberger phoned me one day to say he's been contacted by Deutsche Telekom, a huge like T-Mobile, the biggest world uh, operator of, of telecoms, to say they want to do something with their marketing brands of reaching out and tackling some societal problem. And they've decided they're going to go for dementia. Um, Is there something we could do reaching out with research, with lots of citizen science? And he said, Hey, we've talked about this because Michael and I had, like, should we develop a, a virtual test of navigation problems? Because currently, for tracking something like Alzheimer's dementia, there is no standardized measure that benchmarks someone's navigation skill. You know, you have to have, you know, many, many thousands of people tested on a test and it's hard to get the funding and the time to do that the other major problem you have is building a a test is expensive and hard if it's going to use virtual reality Um, and so that that's also a challenge so what the idea we came up with was that we would build a virtual reality video game that would be really addictive and fun and that it would go onto the app store and google play and people would download it generate data so trajectory information about how they perform and navigating send it back to a server and we could analyze it a relatively simple idea right but the, the actually doing that is oh, i mean it was unbelievably challenging to set up it was made much much more challenging by the fact i added there there was an addictive game and that is not something we do in science well uh you know that side of you want to make a great hollywood movie you want to make a basic movie or a hollywood blockbuster, the difference in effort is just utterly ridiculous. And so here um, we were very fortunate that a huge amount of money was allocated to a professional games company to build this product we called C Quest. that is not available currently on the App Store or Google Play, but we hope to work forward to a, a way of, of getting it back up uh, in a new format in the new year. Uh, but it's partly taken down because we collected data from 4.3 million people when it was up on the store. And it wasn't clear that it was worth collecting the, the trickles of more people after that. Um, we had enough data. But had, the simple idea was that if we had this benchmark from people playing the games, so you, you drive a little boat around over these oceans trying to uh, capture monsters and photograph them and log these and share them with other people on social media um, as a way of kind of making more and more people play it. But the, the key thing it does is, is map your path. So somebody does the game, it's got really bad spatial skill. They will go in big circles, take a terrible route through the virtual reality space when they take their boat through the, the marshes or the, or the um, tropical waters or wherever they are in the, in the game. Um, but we can track that and measure it utterly precisely. Uh, and know where they were what way they were facing in the game we can then analyze that to say if you have you know four million people and we say from that people then told us about their age their gender where they live a range of information so i could say if you are in the uk you're male you're right-handed you um, sleep uh, seven hours a night you um, think you're reasonably good at navigating you've got higher education you and you say okay actually there's going to be probably you know uh, 600 people like you in our sample of 4 million. And we can then take 600 people and take your score and see where you fall relative to this utterly precise benchmark for you. So you have this really tailored capacity. And that's what we did in a paper last year in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences take this vast data set and compare people who um, are at low genetic risk of Alzheimer's or a high genetic risk of Alzheimer's. This is this ApoE um gene that has uh multiple alleles. So you can have um be really quite high risk with the gene of uh developing um Alzheimer's but in this study we're looking at people who are utterly healthy they don't know they have this genetic loading they've just taken part and had a, a genetic test and we were able to show that those people were worse at navigating uh by individually comparing them to their exact match so you know a 62-year-old man we could match them to 62-year-old men from the UK and see how they perform. That's important because all the standardized neuropsychology that's used doesn't match people precisely to the age and gender and, and these things. And we know these things are important for for navigation. The age and gender have a big impact. Um, so I could talk all day about all the, the intricacies of setting up a project. I do get people asking, oh, I'd like to do that. How would we do the same thing you've done, create an app? And you can. I've seen more and more people create fantastic apps and get them onto the app store and get data. And I really encourage people to really consider doing that. And I think we probably need to put more support in the UK into trying to help that process of making that work. Uh, but the huge success we had is a lot to do with the fact we had significant funding behind advertising it. And I and I Telecoms company that wanted to message it out and get that going. So they were amazing to partner with. I learned so much in working with uh, a big telecoms company and the and the um management company they brought in Saatchi and Saatchi, who are famous for advertising. Wow, they were involved in managing how are we going to get this out, and that was a really challenging time working with an advertising agency because their their aims are often misaligned with the science. They want to make the science work, but they are saying if you make the science work like this it's not going to you're not going to get your not going to get people interested so uh it was amazing working with the people in that company and with uh, Deutsche Telekom but yeah we've we got so many spiraling projects from that because it was it, it, you know if you've got that kind of data you can do many many things with it and you can take it into other clinical domains so we we're testing all sorts of clinical cases um with with this task and then relating them back to this massive cohort we have um, so there's a lot, a lot more to come. Basically,
0: I could ask about that project all day. But could you throw out a quick freebie idea for for another mobile app slash game that could be used in research? Gosh, <laughs> yeah, if I you had I more should... time, if I had more time, uh, that's a great, a great point. Actually, uh, I off
1: the top of my head, I've been so focused on navigation and getting that done. Uh, but I think what would be great is having uh, more apps that actually tap into a wider range of cognitive skills. So many of them tap one thing, but actually having something that that does many. And uh, there was a, before we launched ours, there was the great brain experiment produced by UCL and other collaborators um, that, that did have varying tasks, but a lot of them were to do with decision making. Um, and I think we could do with an app that actually has a broader range of so we can understand people's strengths and differences, weaknesses in one app would be amazing uh, and there's a lot of focus on mental health what could we do with them um, tracking that but getting those apps to work is all these things are, are very very hard
0: I hope you enjoy that episode you can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk and if you've been enjoying the podcast then please consider leaving a review on iTunes thank you